81% of 10-year-olds are afraid of being fat. 91% of women on a college campus had attempted to control their weight through dieting. And 35% of normal dieters progress to pathological dieting. So what do you know about eating disorders? You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable, and I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Cynthia Bulick, who is the William and Jean Jordan Distinguished Professor of Eating Disorders at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is also Professor of Nutrition in the School of Public Health and the Director of the UNC Eating Disorder Program. Today, we're discussing eating disorders, two of them anyway, anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, both well-publicized by Hollywood and in the media, but perhaps not correctly. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Bulick. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Now, these are very challenging patients to care for. Um, Why did you get involved in this area? Well, you're right. It is a challenging area, and I actually came to eating disorders through childhood depression, which is where I started. And I was asked to write a chapter that compared sleep EEGs in anorexia and depression, and I got fascinated And I got sucked in, and I've been there ever since. So for background, tell us about the Eating Disorders Coalition. You're vice president, I believe, and what are your goals for the organization for this year? I am. The Eating Disorders Coalition is a coalition of many different organizations who work with eating disorders, and we deal with federal features, federal legislation for eating disorders. And this year is really a landmark year because we're introducing the FREED Act, which is the Federal Response to Eliminate Eating Disorders Act. And what this act does is it's actually seeking more funds for research, treatment, and education about eating disorders. Now, when the lay public or also some of us practicing physicians who may not deal with these patients hear about it, um, the media kind of portrays it as a disease of the wealthy and the starlets and the Hollywood crowd. Is bulimia and anorexia found in lower socioeconomic classes, or is it just the disease of the wealthy? No, absolutely not. In fact, what I say all the time is that eating disorders don't discriminate. They go across socioeconomic status, across sex, across sexual orientation, and across race. And the bottom line is, it's just the starlets that make their way to People magazine. We don't hear about the millions of other people who are struggling from eating disorders who don't make it to the glossy front pages. Now, what is an evidence-based approach to eating disorders? And tell us, why, why is that needed? Well, you know, as a parent, when one of my kids gets sick, I always want to know, you know, what does the science say about what the best way to intervene is? And one of the things that we really focus on is our, in our program is to pre- present and provide the best evidence-based treatment. So when the science is coming off the presses, we evaluate it, and we really look to see if this should be incorporated into the intervention that we give. Because we want to give parents and patients the same respect that I would expect when I take my child to any sort of a physician. In fact, last year we did a very large report for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that reviewed all of the evidence-based interventions for eating disorders so that we now have a really clear idea of for what we have enough evidence to say that it works. So how should physicians, thinking of a primary care physician or doctor, screen for bulimia or for anorexia? Should they think by age range, look at people that are only 90 pounds? What should they be looking for? Well, one of the things we have been seeing is many more young children with eating disorders. So we're seeing young girls and boys ages 7, 8, 9 with both anorexia and bulimia. So So you do see boys? Absolutely. 
and you can no longer assume that eating disorders only start in the teenage years. And not only that, but at any given time in our program, over 50% of the women are over 30. So we've been seeing this huge transition where many more midlife women are developing eating disorders. So you can't only screen if someone comes in in that narrow age range. In fact, I have a strategy that I love telling nurses in PCP offices to use. You have a great opportunity to screen. You weigh everybody the minute they come through the door. Which they do. Exactly. No matter if you're in for an earache, they weigh you. And instead of just getting the data and moving on, just ask the person a couple simple questions. First, how do you feel about your weight? And then second, what sort of things do you do to control your weight? And it's not just the answers they give you, but it's how they respond to those questions that can give you a little bit of an idea of, is this a hot spot for this person? Should I pursue it any further? So what, like they tense up or what would they see? Well, some people might be very verbal about, I'm on a diet all the time and my weight's going up and down and, you know, and, and I've been on some extreme diets. And some people might even be very forthcoming in saying that they've been using diet pills or they've tried laxatives or they've been vomiting. Um, it's really just giving people permission to talk about these disorders that can help us destigmatize them. So what I hear you saying is they may want to talk about it. They may not have the opportunity. They may be hiding it or masking it to the extent that a nurse in the physician's office opens a question and it unbottles it. Is that it? If you open the door, it's the only way you're going to find out what's on the other side. For those of you just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Cynthia Bulick from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and we're discussing the topic of eating disorders. What about professional athletes? Um, I was talking to a trainer who said many of them do have an eating disorder. Would you comment? Absolutely. We do a lot of work with the NCAA and even the International Olympic Committee to sort of help decrease eating disorders um, in these sports. It's a huge issue. It's something that we educate coaches and trainers. We educate sports associations. Um, and it's something you really have to look at, and you really have to figure out where you draw the line between someone who's just training really hard and is appropriately regimented in their behavior and when they've crossed that line into disordered eating. Are sports associations concerned with this? They are. In fact, we've been really happy with the response that we've gotten from most sports and from the IOC and the NCAA. Now, what are some of the reasons, and I realize science may or may not have evolved to have all these answers, why does one patient become anorexic and another becomes obese? because really they're both eating disorders. How much of it is genetics and how much is environmental, or can we say? Right. Well, I don't consider obesity necessarily to be an eating disorder. I think binge eating is an eating disorder. Binge eating, okay. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I will say is that anorexia has been under incredible misconceptions for decades. People have thought that it's a disorder of choice, it's a disorder of vanity, it's caused by bad parenting, and what they missed is the whole biological component to it. So we know now that over 50% of liability for developing anorexia nervosa is actually due to genetic factors. And it's not as simple as just saying, you know, eat more and get better or choose to not have anorexia nervosa anymore. These people, when they're recovering, are really fighting an uphill battle against their biology. So they desperately need support in order to gain the weight, which is really difficult for them. And that's just the first step. Weight gain is step one in treatment of anorexia nervosa. 
then you have to start dealing with all of the psychological components that are associated with it. So to deal with this, they really do need to see a psychologist or an eating disorder center. Is that correct? It's really helpful when you can get to one. And I mean, that kind of specialist multidisciplinary care is your best option. But there are lots of people who don't live close. And again, what we need to do is pull together an effective multidisciplinary team if that's the best you can do. And what that would be is be a PCP to deal with basic medical issues, a psychologist that can help with the psychotherapy part, a dietitian to help with the weight gain and the refeeding. And those are really some of the key components. And a psychiatrist if the person needs medication for anxiety or depression. And treat the family as well, right? If they're young, you bring that family in, absolutely. So it is a treatable disease. And what about relapse? Anorexia is definitely treatable. And I think that's one of the myths that's out there that we need to debunk. People make full recoveries from anorexia nervosa. There are also people who do well but still have some of the lingering psychological symptoms like the body dissatisfaction or the drive for thinness. And then there's about 25% who develop a chronic course. And as you may or may not know, anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. So this is a serious illness. Parents and physicians should not think that this is just a passing fad. The referral should be made early if anorexia nervosa is suspected. What is the mortality from? Well, there are two things. I mean, it's related to starvation, but the number one cause of death in anorexia nervosa is actually suicide. But what I often tell parents is that, you know, it's not your daughter that committed suicide. It's the anorexia nervosa that committed suicide. And that's really what we see. And then the second part is just sequelae of starvation. And they may relapse. Is that part of the recovery? That's true, too. Relapse is definitely a concern, especially in the year after hospitalization. You really have to have close follow-up during that period. But the other thing that we see is other major transition or conflict times in life This is when the risk for relapse goes up. It's just sort of like, you know, you have an acre pain in your joint and it gets worse when the rain's coming. When there's a rainy day, that's when the risk for anorexia relapse goes up again. So is it like uh, substance abuse or addiction? I don't consider it like substance abuse or addiction, but I think some of the models that are applied to substance abuse are very effective. And for example, one of the things that I worry about in relapse for anorexia is anytime they get into negative energy balance, so they're expending more than they're taking in, that becomes a high-risk period for relapse. And the reason is that at baseline, these tend to be really, really anxious people, and their bodies respond differently to starvation than the rest of us. Most of us kind of get more anxious and uncomfortable and dysphoric when we're starving. But for them, starvation is actually anxiolytic, and we need to give them other tools to reduce their baseline anxiety. I never heard that before. That's enlightening. Mm. Is it a preventable disease? You know, we don't know the answer to that question. There is so much research going out there on how best to prevent eating disorders, but we don't have clear data yet on what the best way is to do that. What we're looking at now is how can we help moms create a more buffering environment for their children? Because even though genes are 50%, environment is still 50%. And we can't change the genes yet, but we can change the environment. And, you know, some of the things that we know is that You know, even though we were talking about sports in one direction last time, in the other direction, girls who participate in sports can get some really positive self-body image. You know, my body's strong, my body's cool, I can do some really neat stuff with it. And part of what we need to do with young girls is really promote that positive body image instead of constantly feeling like they need to be stick-thin in order to be attractive and successful. Where can physicians go to get more accurate information on these disorders? Right. I mean, 
mean, there are a couple excellent websites up there, and there are conferences every year that speak to physician training. In terms of professionals, the Academy for Eating Disorders conference and website, and that website is www.aedweb.org, is an excellent place where professionals come together. In addition to the Academy, there are also special interest groups that would speak specifically to different types of physicians who could be involved with eating disorders. You can also get information on the National Eating Disorders Association website and, of course, the Eating Disorders Coalition. Dr. Bulick, thank you for being my guest today. Thank you so much for even having this topic on your show. You've certainly raised our consciousness a lot, and you've given a lot of facts and information I think our listeners will benefit from. We've been discussing eating disorders, and I am Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or to listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.